Ripple of Change, Chapter 1, Do No Harm, Joshua J. Judy, Patient. Everything I share here, I share from the patient perspective. I was born in 1981. Wife has given me four decades of experience as both a patient under a medical professional's care and as a patient of life. That passage of time has provided me many hats to wear, sometimes a pill taker, other times a shot taker, now more than ever, a premium, copay, and high deductible payer. It wasn't always that way, though. I remember as a child not paying for doctor's visits and scripts were $2. Other times, they were free. My father had worked at General Motors, and the insurance plans for blue-collar workers and their families were actually worth admiring, not the stuff we have now. I oscillate somewhere between active insurance company hater and disinclined policyholder. The pharmaceutical companies don't fare much better in my eyes. Sometimes I'm a severe side effect sufferer, and other times I felt okay. But I've probably never felt as good as when my own body balanced everything before ever taking a pill. I've had many touch points with the healthcare industry, some good, some terrible, and some life-saving. And with that last one, I've experienced feelings of eternal gratitude. Along the way, I've met many doctors, nurses, and supporting staff. Some individuals have been amazing and left you feeling like you were an immediate family member. Others have been tone deaf with terrible bedside manners and massive egos. Some simply incompetent. As the off-quoted saying goes, not everyone graduates in the top of their class. I've watched the changes in the healthcare industry through the years. Some painless and inconsequential, some of convenience, some of unyielding frustration and masterful time wasting. I recall rows and rows of paper records and yellow legal pads, tear off paper scripts with illegible writing. I remember doctors exclusively wearing a pair of slacks, a dress shirt, and a tie, all visible underneath their trustworthy bright white coats. I remember being impressed as a child by that white coat. I could put my faith in this person and in a kid's mind back then. Only two professions existed in the world, doctors and lawyers. And as I learned more about the world, maybe a police officer, teacher, or firefighter. Growing up, if you had a good relationship with your primary care doctor, you didn't always need an office visit. If it was just bronchitis or a sinus infection, as you described it over the phone, a script was called in. The weapons of choice, amoxicillin and cough syrup with codeine. As the years passed, I watched a society dress more casually, sometimes very casually. So too did medical staff. Scrubs and tennis shoes became more the norm. Who wouldn't want to wear their pajamas to work? That's what Megan, my wife, who works in veterinary medicine and enjoys similar fashion, jokingly says. The long rows of records and manila folders disappeared, moving to unseen or forgotten storage facilities. In their place were computers and tablets. Patient web portals came into existence. I could now see my lab results often before the doctor did. If you geek out about that kind of stuff, this was an exciting new world as a patient. Dr. Google became both a blessing and a curse. A know-it-all resource, I absolutely am convinced I have that disease for patients, and I heard enough who's the real doctor here for doctors. I've been through at least four dentists in my life. The first dentist I had for about 30 years until he finally retired. It was well-deserved and I was happy for him, but it brought up an important reflection point. When you find a doctor you love, 
One of the first selfish thoughts you have is that someday this person is going to retire and I'll have to find someone else. Perhaps this was my first flawed thought. Doctors aren't human, and because of that, they never get sick or need to rest themselves, right? The next three dentist changes all happened within a matter of maybe a year. I heard none of these young dentists owned the practice or could even think of owning it, but they owed someone and lots on their student loans. I would guess in the ballpark of 400k or more. Apparently, another out-of-state retired dentist had worked himself into the investor class of society, letting my childhood dentist cash out his practice and retire himself. I wondered if the revolving door of young dentist I was experiencing had anything to do with how they were starting out so deep in the hole after dental school, moving to where they could get the best pay, cheapest housing, and shortest commute. To a lesser degree, I felt I could relate. It took me and my wife 10 years to pay off our respective student loans. Our first apartment together was a loft in an old converted wool mill factory that once made blankets for army soldiers during World War II. It was barely 400 square feet. We used to be able to reach the TV controls from our couch with our toes because our living room was that narrow. Changing the stations by toe is a fun game, if not a bit embarrassingly silly. I've only had two family doctors in my life, so a bit more stable than my Rolodex of dentist. My first family doctor was Minus Silver, MD. He was there when I was born by cesarean. He weighed me and scribbled it on a yellow legal pad. He once probably showed me his handwritten record of it decades later. Six pounds, nine ounces. It was a small gesture, but touching, and it stuck with me. It felt personal. My mother told me this same family doctor would make her eat liver because her iron was low. Not her favorite dish, but you do what you have to do. I don't think prenatal vitamins were a thing back then. When I broke up with my first serious girlfriend in college, he prescribed some sleeping pills for a short time period. It helped me get through. Dr. Silver eventually retired from his practice and moved on to become the director of the town's urgent care. He reduced his hours but still got to practice medicine. He once told me his hours were in the mid to high 20s most weeks, and that was plenty enough. I later heard policy changes by hospital administrators kept happening, and he was displeased. When I attended his memorial service years later, I remembered some of these random things. His wife told those in attendance that he spent all day caring for others, but he often privately wondered who cared about him. The news of his passing was equally shocking and confusing. I was sitting in my hometown barber shop, uncertain chatter swirling around, how he had been in a motorcycle accident a few towns over. I knew he rode. While it sounded plausible, it felt abrupt and heartbreaking. Nevertheless, some doubts had formed in my mind and lingered. Dr. Silver was an experienced rider. He knew his way around dangerous machines that went blazingly fast. Beyond motorcycles, I recalled the pictures of him drag racing on the walls of his office. Wouldn't we have seen something this significant in the local papers? Among family and friends, we quietly debated what added up and what did not. Quite some time later, the truth was revealed, and it was ugly. He had died by suicide, and the manner in which it occurred was shocking. My naivety on display, I only knew the world of medicine to heal, not destroy, and never the healers themselves. Oh, what I would learn in time. How could the signs of burnout be missed? Why is always one of the first questions you ask, but to simply ask doesn't mean there's a simple answer. 
It was depressing and seemed wholly unnecessary. It is strange when someone you know passes, let alone tragically. Even when you don't think you know them on a deeply personal level. All these little innocent interactions, seemingly forgotten, come flooding back. It's like your brain has been covertly tucking these moments away. Till the finality of the situation shatters your ability to hide behind the noise of the day. What's left are only memory reels on center stage, to replay over and over. You realize you knew this person better than you thought. Someone, I don't recall who, had slipped some information to me. Something along the lines of my doctor deciding to go about his day like any other. He planned to golf with his sons, and he did. He was in his car when it happened. He pulled over somewhere and catastrophically exited the stage. He was highly respected in the area by his patients, more than he ever knew. I was told the motorcycle accident was concocted to save his reputation and legacy. It was a believable cover story initially that quickly fell away to reveal at least one simple answer. He didn't deserve this. Even though he had pulled back his commitment significantly, the system kept asking for more. He had internalized too many of the stresses and failures of this system. From 1977 to 2017, he personified family practice. He was only 65. My second primary care doctor, Todd R. Otten, MD, served in the Navy. I watched how he has grown from military environment to family care, his bedside manner softening to his patient's appreciation. And now he is overbooked with patients, with more that want to see him than possibly can. Again, I find myself selfishly wondering when he retires if I'll be able to find another doctor I truly like and respect. This is the system we're all cogs in. I share these true life stories from not just a patient's perspective, but also as a father, husband, son, and brother. My hope is that these collective experiences help others learn and importantly, find some healing if you're in search of it. But most importantly, I would like people to realize that we're all human and our shared humanity, need for mutual respect and ability to relate to one another is bigger than any system we think we're cogs in. After all, I think we all just want to be cared for. With sincere regards, Joshua J. Judy. Chapter 2. History of Present Illness The people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Steve Jobs Todd R. Otten, M.D. The desk is covered in heart-shaped glitter. Balloons decorate the wall, and a rainbow unicorn hangs in the corner. Opposite the desk, other treasures lie. A vintage wooden case, proudly displaying Lego figures. A Spider-Man pillow lying on an antique coffee table. A piece of petrified wood as a bookend, and a globe with pushpins signifying places I have been. The red on the pins fading over the years. I suppose my office does look like something of an antique store, or maybe a flea market. The red folder of death sitting on my desk beckons me, but I set it aside for the moment. Having just returned from a week's vacation with my family, I feel rejuvenated. I am in a productive mood and happy to be here, in our family practice clinic. I honestly looked forward to returning. The nurse practitioners, NP, hung the unicorn in my absence. It speaks to the office culture and the joy we regularly experience. 
a wry smile forms. As I begin reviewing messages, I check the post-mortem section. One of my longtime patients lost her battle with lung cancer. I remember the day I had a minor fender bender driving into work. Nothing serious, but I was rattled. She was the first patient I saw that day and gave me a hug when I explained my tardiness. The hugs continued over the years. She always had compassion and empathy toward me, even while she was fighting for her life. This speaks to the doctor-patient and the patient-staff relationship in our office. Serendipitously, shortly after her death, I had a follow-up with her husband and was able to share this paragraph with him. Powerful and cathartic for both of us. Work hasn't always been this way. I used to dread returning from vacation, often with over 500 messages to review or respond to. It often took me a week to catch up. Now it typically takes a day or two. And what about the patients waiting for my input? What changed to prompt my difference in perspective? Everything. Notes to the reader. What is your favorite vegetable? Tata Rotten, MD. Sausage. Four-year-old patient. Before we begin, a comment on the joke sprinkled throughout. For the past 13 years, I have been jotting down humorous things patients have said and many are hoping to see them in print. In fact, many patients specifically requested their inclusion. No names will be attached. The jokes will simply be labeled as my patient, unless consent was obtained. Even then, how many Garys are in the world? Please note, I have a dry sense of humor, akin to the Sahara on a 120 degree day. Please enjoy. No offense intended. A few other introductory comments are warranted. As my vision evolved into words, it became clear that opportunities arose for a greater audience, far beyond physicians. I see ripple of changes and opportunity on innumerable levels, energizing many, regardless of profession. Think of a compass that points towards answers or solutions. I am writing this book as a broad commentary, an inquisition regarding the dysfunction that exists in healthcare and beyond, and hopefully it will be an inspiration for change. As the final product took shape, the metamorphosis of the target audience became the American healthcare consumer. Ripple of change is laid out in a particular sequence, weaving Joshua's story with mine and occasionally others. We were very intentional with the chronicity of the chapters and encourage you to follow doctor's orders as the themes will build along with our prescription for change. As such, we'll annotate any change in authorship, similar to the beginning of this chapter. I will occasionally offer explanations for the layperson regarding the medical jargon that is intuitive for me. Other times, I will leave that investigation to the reader. There's a litany of acronyms as well, all available for reference. We intentionally do not include a glossary, but one term is worth a short digression. Silo. Many think of a farm or perhaps missiles, but silos or siloing in healthcare is frequently used to describe 
when systems, departments, processes, information, data, or more are isolated from one another. For example, patient information from one hospital to another is often siloed, creating many issues for those of us trying to provide appropriate care. Undoubtedly, this term applies to many industries. There are stories that involve patients, colleagues, administrators, friends, and family. Out of respect for confidentiality, I have replaced names with pseudonyms, unless given permission. Countless people contributed, friends, family, colleagues, physicians, NPs, nurses, administrators, medical assistants, patients, pharmaceutical representatives, architects, professional athletes, PhDs, teachers, business leaders, lawyers, writers, chief executive officers, military officers, and more. The outpouring of ideas was incredible, and eventually we had to limit the topics. But we are all affected by healthcare, hence the multitude of viewpoints. There will be discussion of evidence-based medicine, research, editorials, and recent news. Humor and poetry are included, as are inspiring quotes, and some chapters are closer to a collection of essays. There are a few profane words, a product of serving in the military, but emotions run high in medicine, and I want it to be true to the moment. Perhaps those who may be offended should refrain from continuing. My hope is that all of us reconsider our views of, or roles in, healthcare. Certainly I have. Would I do medicine again? I believe I would, but I'm not sure I would encourage my children. This would have been an easy answer 10 years ago, an emphatic yes. But things have changed. Clerical duties for physicians are greater than ever, and priorities often misaligned. Costs are spiraling out of control, and life expectancy in America is decreasing. I would have to give it considerable thought. And depending on the day, I might even say no. For someone who has dedicated over 20 years of their life in making a difference to others, this is a sad commentary on the current state. The joy of seeing patients is hard to put into words, euphoric at times, sharing in positive outcomes, an improved mood, a defeated cancer. These moments are blessings I share with my patients. One of my patients with schizophrenia recently told me that I was the only person she could count on. Immediately, goose flesh appeared on my arms. But medicine has become increasingly convoluted, with profits often prioritized over people. That is not what I signed up for. Perhaps I was naive. I believe most healthcare workers are in it for the right reasons. Our system needs to stop extracting maximum value from workers and patients. Our healthcare system needs to reassess what the priorities are, and it needs to put patients and providers at the forefront with quality outcomes over filling coffers. Inspiration. Just keep me alive so I can get an autographed copy. Mike Ranville author, friend, and former patient. So what inspires a 45-year-old physician 
on the verge of retirement to write a book? The answer would probably constitute an entire chapter itself, but would it be entertaining? I've long considered authoring a book, and my thoughts return to the topic I know best, medicine. I pondered what works well in healthcare and what does not. I suppose my altruism even extends to fulfilling an item on my bucket list. What I found fascinating was that the book started to write itself. Having been through burnout and watching my colleagues grow increasingly frustrated with the current climate of healthcare, writing became cathartic. At some points, I could not get my thoughts down fast enough as the ideas flowed freely into my fingertips. The amount of information available regarding the current issues in healthcare is immense and even overwhelming. And suggestions for improvement are increasingly available. Unfortunately, healthcare as a collective is far from ideal. Medicine is a world of gray. As I reflect on over 20 years of practicing medicine, I wonder, how did we get here? How did the profession I love become so black and white? I am despondent with the clerical burdens. I am saddened by the box clicking. I am disheartened when it's just one more form. I'm discouraged when I hear prior off. I feel desolate, black or white. I feel happy seeing patients. I feel fulfilled teaching students and APPs. I feel content making a difference, black or white. Lest we forget the patient, access, insurance, polypharmacy, mental health, providers staring at a screen. Does data make the dying feel better? Is this the balance we want? I question if I am truly making a difference. How many burned out providers does it take? Will this crisis in medicine end? Perhaps when healthcare leaders actually hear the voices of physicians and patients and listen. Too often, issues in healthcare are assumed to be black and white. Medicine is a world of gray. Todd R. Otten, MD, 2021. This short poem reviews my 20-year career and how it has been impacted by issues that plague healthcare in the United States. I wrote this two years after surviving burnout. Two years have passed, and that part of my career st was still haunting me. As I sat listening to Father Mark Martin's homily at our local parish, inspiration hit me like a ton of bricks. Why not write a book about my experiences with Our Quadruple Aim, OQA. Why not share the successes my patients, colleagues, and I have experienced when we emphasized OQA? I believe if effectively implemented, our quadruplane can transform our current healthcare delivery system into one where all stakeholders thrive. Good physicians really do make a difference, despite the dysfunctional system that has been built around us. As healthcare has morphed more and more into a business model, the drivers are often finance, legal, information technology, IT, and infrastructure, among others. Unfortunately, clinical leaders often play second fiddle. This has led to an 
increasing burdens on the people actually delivering care, and as a result, burnout rates are at unacceptable levels. Unless there is a culture shift at the highest levels, this will not improve. Is there hope? Absolutely. And I believe it starts with our quadruple aim. In the overall of healthcare, we all have our role to play. John Hammergren, Skin in the Game. Before we move forward and learn of Joshua J. Judy's healthcare journey thus far, I would like to formally introduce the concept of our quadruple aim. Our quadruple aim is an evolution of the quadruple aim, which was preceded by the triple aim. Both the triple aim and the quadruple aim are unified goals in delivering healthcare. Confused? Don't fret. It will all make sense shortly. So why add the hour? Doesn't the quadruple aim sound logical enough? Can it stand alone? Absolutely. However, the quadruple aim doesn't imply a sense of ownership. Who is responsible for delivering? We all utilize healthcare. Shouldn't we all be accountable? Absolutely. Adding our strengthens the phrase. The hour emphatically states that we are all responsible. A revolution or an evolution then? Some may consider this nebulous, but medicine is a world of gray. Going forward, we will lose the quotation marks. As Joshua and I begin to weave our stories, our quadruple aim is born. Following is a depiction of our quadruple aim. A circular chart with four quadrants. Patient experience, quality care, lower costs, and provider wellness. Sanguinely, as more individuals take ownership of our healthcare system under the auspices of our quadruple aim, the more things will improve, not only in healthcare, but beyond. Beyond, our quadruple aim is ubiquitous and the four principles can easily be applied to just about any environment. Think of OQA as a light guiding you home in the darkest of nights. For example, consider how OQA might apply if you owned a restaurant. Think of patient experience as customer satisfaction. Quality care replaced by a wonderful meal. Lower costs as fair pricing and provider wellness as employee wellness. What about a local brewery, such as Dimes in Diamonddale, Michigan? Dimes quadruple aim. Or how does our quadruple aim translate to our educational system? In the book, we depict a a chart comparing our quadruple aim to education's quadruple aim. Patient experience equates to student learning experience. Quality care equates to quality pedagogy for all. Lower costs equates to reasonable tuition. And provider wellness equates to teacher well-being. As this example in education illustrates, the opportunities are endless. Our quadruple aim can be crafted or molded as warranted. Like your fingerprint, every patient is unique. So too, every situation. The American healthcare consumer has plenty of skin in the game more like an appendage for many, given our exorbitant spending. 
Patients and providers are drowning in a sea of dysfunction as dollars are disproportionately allocated to the surrounding sharks. Our quadruple aim offers powerful insight, inspiration, and courage to reimagine yourself, the workplace, and our healthcare system. In his discussion of aligned incentives, Benjamin Schwartz, MD, discusses a ground-up approach to overhaul American medicine. He suggests current stakeholders have disparate goals and misaligned incentives. I agree, but if enough voices join our quadruple aim, they will be difficult to ignore. Having all stakeholders transparently working towards common goals is fundamental to OQA. Joshua and I believe the four components of our quadruple aim masterfully blend aligned incentives into a bare bones approach. Concepts that are easily grasped and implemented, allowing you to contribute to our ripple of change. Joshua J. Judy, patient. Dr. Otten is spot on. Medicine is a world of gray. That makes it hard to know who or what to trust. And if you don't know who to trust, it may seem easier to default to trusting nobody. It's a lonely path and unquestionably dark. Trust dies, but mistrust blossoms. Sophocles. Many would raise their hands if asked, is trust the bedrock of any relationship? But what does it mean in the context of wellness? I offer that trust is what binds together every interaction between you as a patient and your doctor, you and insurance, you and the pharmacy, doctors and their staff, doctors and pharmaceutical representatives, doctors and administrators, and even you and your body. In my ongoing health journey, many days I wondered if I could trust my body to do the right thing, let alone trust others. I wondered if some of my doctors had my back and trusted what I told them about my concerns. Similarly, did I have my doctors back by being completely upfront with them about my expectations? While this describes doctor-patient interactions, haven't you asked yourself similar questions in your own relationships? When you do, it becomes obvious. Trust isn't something you can set and forget. It must be owned and maintained, continually fostered in every exchange. It means not purposely admitting information. It means considering how your actions will not only impact yourself, but others too. It means doing the right thing without being asked or forced. Trust is earned and grows over time. One wrong move can quickly sweep it away. Trust is hard to build and it won't last without effort. Absent trust, how can a physician and a healthcare administrator optimize patient experience, quality care, lower cost, or provider wellness? In short, they won't. Unfortunately, there's a lot of mistrust in the healthcare system. Mistrust has blossomed while trust has died. We owe it to ourselves to explore why and stake a claim in our healthcare system, our quadruple aim. Dr. Ottens and my hope is that our joint journey will light a path to rebuild trust in healthcare. We hope our transparency enables you to realize the potential of your own wellness journey and in turn, help you discover how each of us can contribute to building a more equitable healthcare system. It can't just be mine or Dr. Otten's system or AIM because we all own the system's success or failure. This requires reestablishing trust in a healthcare system that cares about you and you about it. The key is to find that happy balance, think yin and yang. 
by highlighting what still works in addition to what Dr. Otten states, having the courage to challenge the status quo. Doctors are people too. Todd R. Otten, MD. As I struggle with the current state of healthcare, I remind myself, why did I go into medicine? My thoughts typically drift back to successes with patients. Whether it was making a difficult diagnosis, helping transition a dying patient into hospice, or reducing polypharmacy, multiple medications. These are the things that provide me joy. However, the current burdens that exist often outweigh the positives of delivering care and can drown a provider. I am not alone in this sentiment, and it can be very disheartening. Sarah Berg cites Rush University Medical Center's Chief Wellness Officer, Bryant Adibi, MD, in a recent AMA webinar. Dr. Adibi eloquently summarizes the macro and institutional contributors to burnout. The primary driver of burnout is macroeconomics, spanning the entire U.S. health system. But there are also secondary drivers, typically at the organizational level. Such administrative barriers and burdens or operational inefficiencies that significantly contribute and make it worse. Additionally, there are also tertiary drivers, he added. These include the realities of trying to balance a professional career with a family and other personal life challenges. It is the confluence of these factors that ultimately drives burnout. Not one individual piece, but all of these together. Our role as organizational leaders is to acknowledge and address those drivers over which we have control and attempt to provide solutions that will be impactful. Coincidentally, as I started writing, I precipitated a tension headache, thinking about all of the flaws in healthcare. The irony. So before I get into the heart of the matter, I think it's important the reader knows a little more of who I am and why I'm writing this book. So let's go back in time and meet a young man. My formative years were filled with trials and tribulations. A bright and fearless child proved a volatile combination. As a middle school student, I wasn't challenged enough, and boredom got me in trouble. I recall arguing with a math teacher about why I didn't need to show my work, if the answer was correct. This led to some passive-aggressive behavior that ultimately got me suspended. Can you imagine the frustration of the teacher? Bullying was another major challenge during my youth, as I often overreacted with other students, as children like to tease, and was bullied relentlessly. The bullying led to fighting with other students and more than one suspension from school, and over time contributed to some significant depression. I distinctly remember staring at the bathroom mirror in grade school, contemplating suicide. Looking back on these developmental years, it certainly explains my frustrations with how healthcare has evolved. And I will not be bullied. I share these struggles of my adolescence to convey some of the deficiencies that existed in healthcare some 30 years ago, and yet still remain. But it still serves to question, how well do we deal with mental health in the US? Unfortunately, many, including myself, 
would say this is a horribly underfunded specialty. In a letter to the United States House of Representatives on February 2nd, 2022, the American Hospital Association writes, our healthcare system is underfunded and understaffed to meet Americans' behavioral health needs. The AHA reports that over 25% of patients admitted to a hospital have a concomitant behavioral health disorder, and over 100 million Americans live in areas with a shortage of psychiatrists. Fortunately, my high school years were better. The depression resolved, and I excelled both athletically and academically. I had the fortune of winning a state championship in soccer and was an all-state track and field athlete. These accomplishments allowed me to get an academic scholarship and run Division I track at the University of Detroit Mercy. College was an amazing experience. I worked extremely hard and ultimately graduated as valedictorian in 1997, in three and a half years. My athletic success continued, earning three varsity letters in track and field as a sprinter and a long jumper. Most importantly, I met my best friend, my wife, Angie. We married in 2001 and have four wonderful children, Joshua, Brandon, Daniel, and Natalie. Why do I write about my developmental years? Historically, physicians are held to a higher standard. However, we are human beings, not machines. We have feelings, emotions, families, worries, hobbies, faith, losses. The list goes on and on. Being able to compartmentalize is essential, but witnessing death or telling someone they are dying can only happen so many times before it wears on you. I tell patients, everyone has a bucket they can pour stress into. Some people have big buckets and some small. But when the bucket starts to overflow, problems develop. I am a person just like you. Good fortune. After graduating from the University of Detroit Mercy, I went on to medical school at Wayne State University in Detroit. It didn't take long to realize I belonged. I was 16 years old when I decided to dedicate my life to the practice of medicine. However, I was a little naive about the process and fortunate to be accepted the first year I applied. I know many brilliant physicians who took two or three years to be accepted. Nervous and alone, fate was on my side. While waiting for my interview, I ran into a colleague with whom I had attended high school. He was a third-year medical student at the time, and we had previously run track together. He asked who I was interviewing with. I told him the name, and he offered, Dr. Blessing loves the DMC. Whatever you do, mention the DMC. The following is a brief excerpt from my interview. Mild-mannered pediatrician. So why do you want to go to medical school? Me? Honestly, I love science and I want to make a difference in the world. Mild-mannered pediatrician. So what do you like most about Wayne State? Me. Well, I really love the DMC. At that point, he spoke for 20 minutes about the DMC. 
how great it was, the learning, and the opportunities that availed. It was during these passionate 20 minutes I learned what the DMC was, the Detroit Medical Center. Oops. Inside, I laughed as fortune smiled on me. Green behind the ears, that interview still felt right. The good Lord had plans for me, and I was accepted into medical school a few months later. Do you have the courage for change? Change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. Barack Obama. My wife, family, and friends will tell you I always need to be challenged. Rarely am I satisfied with the status quo. Perhaps that is the impetus to write this book. It breaks my heart to see the level of malfunction in healthcare. I occasionally tear up when a colleague conveys their frustrations and experience with burnout. A little part of me dies every time a patient tells me about the struggles they endure and obstacles to overcome trying to obtain care. Quality healthcare should be accessible and affordable for everyone. The healthcare experience should be positive for both patients and providers. Profits should not be the primary driver. I do not have all the answers, but I do have the courage to ask questions. I have the courage to challenge the status quo. I have the courage to stand up for what I believe. I believe in our quadru blame. Think of OQA as a lighthouse guiding your ship on a stormy night, or better yet, a mindset or framework for evaluating existing problems. I pray this book encourages you to ask questions and stand up for what you believe. Healthcare in the U.S. won't fix itself, but an army of patients and providers just might. If enough of us make an effort, we just might move the needle. Joshua J. Judy and I first met over a decade ago. As fate would have it, our lives forever intertwined. What started as a doctor-patient relationship has evolved to a friendship through a common bond and healing process. Our journeys overlap in a myriad of ways. This relationship has been the driving force to create Ripple of Change, and we consider it our first stone to be cast. We hope it's as powerful for you as it has been for us. As we co-authored the book, there certainly is a yin and yang. For clarity, we will annotate whose words you are enjoying with our name prior. For example, Joshua wrote the first chapter, his name preceding his thoughts. Anytime the author changes, the appropriate name will appear. There will be an evolution of Joshua's adoption of the Our Quadruple Aim as we progress. We will toggle back and forth with subtle interplays. The themes are intended to challenge you, be thought-provoking, and occasionally uncomfortable, as change is rarely easy.